0: The name of the message is called Jesus, My Protector. And the subtitle, as you saw maybe on the previous PowerPoint, was Grace, The Last Man Standing. I'm passionate about some of the things he showed me. I'm kind of probably be a little more in teacher mode today than I am preacher mode. One of the most common questions asked among unbelievers and believers is this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever asked that question? You have asked that question. Good. (laughs) As we sang earlier, I am not alone. Why do bad things happen to good people? As I was preparing this week, the thought came back to me of Dr. Miles Monroe. Most of you have heard of Dr. Miles Monroe. I mean, he's an icon in the faith. Miles Monroe was from the Bahamas, preaching the kingdom message for years and years. Preached all over the world. He was an ambassador for the nations. Just a a good guy. About uh, two months ago, he was on his way to a ministry conference. A ministry conference. One that he had founded several years before they would meet annually. He was the keynote speaker. And as they were coming in for a landing, it was a foggy day. He had his corporate jet. And as they were coming in for a landing, they were crossing the shipping container yard. And somebody left a crane up in the air. You've got a crane... And you've got a plane. And the plane is heading right for that crane. And that plane flew right into that crane and nine people were ushered out into eternity, including Miles Monroe. Sitting next to Miles Monroe was his wife, his lead pastor who would minister when he was out of town. His new youth pastors who had just came into his ministry, husband and wife, were sitting in the plane with him. Their little two-year-old boy was there. She was pregnant with their second child had one or two other staff members from his church include, and then also the pilot and I couldn't help but think when my friend called me to tell me about this happening I couldn't help but think God why couldn't you just move the crane just a little bit as he was coming in just move it a little bit you could do that right God how about you leave the crane where it's at and we'll just reroute the plane would you consider that a bad thing happening to a good person I'd consider that a bad thing happening to a good person, wouldn't you? So this question, we have all kinds of questions. You ever heard of a rhetorical question? It's a question that you ask that really requires no answer. It's kind of like if you locked your keys in the car and your wife is standing next to you and you said, honey, what was I thinking? I'm not really asking her to tell me what I was thinking. She would probably say, the truth of the matter is, you weren't thinking. That's called a rhetorical question. It needs no answer. The answer is already in there. And so why do bad things happen to good people? And I thought about this yesterday when I was in my study. If Jesus was here, I don't know if I would have enough nerve to ask him that question or not, but if I did get up enough nerve and said, Jesus, can you tell me why bad things happen to good people? Jesus was really skilled in doing what they call counter-questioning. I don't know if you've noticed that when you're reading the Bible, but people would come up to Jesus and they would ask him a question. And instead of answering the question, he would give them a couple of questions. Those are called counter questions. Usually, if someone's counter questioning you, there's something either wrong with the question or there's something wrong with the motivation. Otherwise, it's not good etiquette to answer a question with a question. Most of the time, when that happened, or I would say probably all the time when that would happen, is Jesus was saying there's something wrong with your question or there's something wrong with your motivation because he was always trying to get trapped in questions. We caught this woman in adultery, the law says. You know how all that went with Jesus. And the essence of a teacher is to lead you, lead you to the answer. It's not always just to give you all the answers. Because I'm going to tell you something, you'll feel a whole lot better when you discover the answer all by yourself, you know, when Jesus just reveals it to you. There's just something about studying the Word when a nugget pops out, you're like, oh, God, that was that is really, really cool. It means more to you, even if it's something real little that nobody else would get excited about. It means more to you because God showed it to you personally than it would if the most eloquent minister got up and preached 10,000 words about that. So a good teacher basically says, allow me to reframe kind of what you're asking by questions. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, we see one of these encounters. Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been healing. Jesus has been doing miracles. And finally, this one guy just can't stand it anymore. And he finally comes up to Jesus. And here's what it says On one occasion, an expert in the law, remember that, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? I think it's a pretty good question. I've been. um, Hearing that question for a lot of years. I've engaged people to get them to ask that question. And you know what? My answer was obviously different than Jesus's. You know, in the past. I mean, I was so <laughs> entrenched in religion. If you would ask me that question even a, two years ago, I would have said, Well, first of all, you need to be sorry for your sin. The next thing you need to do is you need to, I guess, get on your knees. Humble yourself. You need to uh, repent. You need to change your mind. You need to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin. You need to invite Jesus to come and live in your heart. Then, when you get up, you need to go tell somebody. You need to go tell it. Make it public. And I've said all these things to people. Go make it public, and I think they have some merit to them. Then, you need to get planted in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. You ever use that one? Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. You need to get baptized. Then you need to start reading the Word of God. Then you need to start praying and start giving like Steve was talking about. You know what? Jesus didn't say any of these things when the man said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We know through the scriptures, Jesus says, just believe on me and you will have eternal life. Does he make it simple? He said, just believe on me and you will have eternal life. But he responds with two questions for this guy. The guy says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says to him, What is written in the law? And remember, this guy is an expert in the law. He says, What is written in the law? He knew it from front to back. You see, the Bible hadn't been written yet. There was no New Testament. All he knew was the, the Torah. He knew the, the books of the Bible that had been in the Old Testament. He was an expert in the law. And so he took him back to what he already knew. He says, What is written in the law? And then he says, How? Do you read it? In other words, he was saying, how do you interpret it? How do you apply it to your life? I bet you could have heard a pin drop about that point in time. You know what? You don't ask a person for directions when you know where you're going, do you? I mean, if I really know where I'm going, it would be foolish for me to stop and ask somebody for direction. Now there's times when even I, not too often, will have to stop and ask for directions. But if I know where I'm going, I never have to stop on the way to Kenosha and say, where is 7600 75th Street at? I know exactly where to get on and get off. So the fact that this man was asking for that direction tells me he had kind of an achy-breaky heart. There was something in his heart that was not sure. He wanted to make sure that he had it right. He's listening to this radical teaching. He's hearing Jesus teach stuff. That's like, wait a minute now. This sounds right. But if this is right, then I'm completely wrong. If this is right, then I've got to totally change. But then when Jesus told him that, the Bible says, this is in Luke chapter 10, by the way, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. But he wanted to justify himself. You think that's the problem? You can't justify yourself. Justified means to be right with God. You're justified. That's where righteousness comes in. Once God justifies us, But the Bible says he wanted to justify himself. As you read that narrative of the Good Samaritan, I think it's a beautiful story. Really what it is, is Jesus wanted him to see the difference between the law and love. You see, law has a faulty foundation. Grace, love, has a firm foundation. What law does is law gets real rigid and it passes by on the other side, even when people are bleeding all over the place like the guy that's attacked by the robbers. What law does is says, like it's, it's the priest, it's the Levite in there, the assistant pastor and the pastor. They pass by on the other side because the law forbade them to touch blood. But here comes a man, a Samaritan. He's not supposed to touch a Jew. He's not supposed to have anything to do with a Jew. Yet he takes the time to bend down, and you know the story, bandage him all up, put him on his donkey, take him in, pay for his hotel, all that stuff really takes care of this guy. That's the difference between law and love. Oh friends, I'm gonna tell you something. Have you noticed the theme over the last nine months? It's been about love, it's been about grace. It's not been about law. This was probably one of the more challenging messages God was birthing in my heart this week because there were points, I even talked with my wife about it last night. I said, honey, I want to make sure I don't get into condemnation. I am not about condemnation. I am about a finished work. I'm about grace. Even though we have grace, yes, ample grace, a wonderful supply of grace, there's still a responsibility for the believer. You've got to cooperate with grace. Grace, yes, awesome, awesome. There's a responsibility also on the believer's part. Now, I'll get into some of that in a little bit. So when the question is asked, why do bad things happen to good people? Every one of us could answer that question many different ways. How about if I gave you this answer? Well, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and the sun rises on the good and evil. Now, how do you like that one? What does that do for you? You know, that's biblical. That's in the Bible. That shows you how good God is. He said, "Listen, I don't care if you're evil. The sun's going to come up on you. You're good. Sun's going to come up. You're bad. You're still going to get rain on your crop. God is it's because it's because God is good. He says the sun rises on the good and evil. The rain falls on the just and the unjust." Biblical answer. But let me ask you this: Does that answer fully satisfy your deepest depression? It doesn't, does it? Does that answer fully satisfy your persistent pain? Does that answer satisfy your exiled emotions? The answer is no, no, and no. Only grace, the last man standing, can satisfy that emptiness, that situation that's going on in the heart. Only God, and he's closer than we know and think. Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm going to counter that question. I was thinking about what happened to Jesus as he walked the earth. You know, he was called a whole bunch of names that you may not even been called in your life. He was called Beelzebub. I mean, he was called, he was, they said, he's got a devil. He was called a drunkard and, and a winebibber and a glutton. And they said, you know, you're a friend of sinners. I mean, they were just insulting him to the max. People didn't like him. People tried to kill him. Do you think that's a bad thing happening to a good person? I do, don't you? He was dishonored in his own hometown. He figured, I'm going back home. You know, sometimes you just look forward to going back home. You've been out on the road. You just look forward to getting home. And imagine when you come home that you're just dishonored. He's been on the road for a while. You'd think they'd have a little banner across the road coming back, but it wasn't like that when Jesus came home. He was dishonored in his own hometown by family and friends. And the Bible says he could do not many miracles there because of their unbelief that was Jesus. Was that a bad thing happening to a good person? Oh, it was, wasn't it? How about this one? He was denied by Peter and forsaken by all. Bad thing happening to a good person. Then let's fast forward. There was a time when he went to the whipping post. I don't like to be too graphic, but the whipping post is very, very graphic. In fact, most people when they were tied to the whipping post and received those 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails did not even live beyond the whipping post. The Romans were cruel. They would rip you apart and pull your intestines out and walk 15, 20 feet in the other direction and they would laugh and and mock you and just say to you, if you can walk from where you're at to us, we'll let you go free. We won't even crucify you. But nobody could make that, even that 15, 20 foot journey. That that was a mean place to be tied to. Was that a bad thing happening to a good person? It sure was, wasn't it? How about that crown of thorns when it was placed upon his head? You ever stick your head one time? You bleed like crazy. Do you know a man only has a gallon and a half of blood in his body? No wonder he was so weak. He didn't have much blood left in him. The way he would have been beaten? I mean, can you imagine all the, the blood that had already been emptied out? And then the crown of thorns that was placed on his head. And they didn't just set it up on there like they show you in the movies. My Bible tells me that he was beaten with clubs on top of his thorns. Would you say that's a bad thing happening to a good person? I sure would too. And then how about when the darling of heaven was spiked an old rugged cross, the crucifixion itself. Would you say that was a bad thing happening to a good person? Absolutely. Last week, after the service, we took communion and then I closed it out in prayer. And when I was done, nobody moved. You remember that? Nobody got up. Now that's unusual for and grace ministry. Usually, well, got to go. Mark preached too long again. I mean, nobody moved. And nobody said anything. It was, just, it was just like this. And instantly I was flashed back, and I told you about this last week. I was flashed back 11 years ago, or whenever it was, when the Passion of the Christ came out, and I took the youth group, to the theater to see that. When that ended, nobody moved. Nobody got up. Nobody said a word. It was just total silence in the theater while people sat there and wept. And that's what it reminded me of last week, and and so I, I talked a little bit about that. But as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, when they made the movie, they had a cast of actors and actresses, They had a director and a producer. They had choreographers on scene. They had makeup artists. They had the sound guys. They had lights. They had cameras. They had the script writers. That was the best Hollywood could do. But I couldn't help but think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She saw the real thing. She was right there. I wouldn't call it a front row seat, but she was front row, watching the darling of heaven be crucified. The crucifixion started at 9 o'clock in the morning. It lasted till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. If you go from 9 to 3, how many hours is that? That's 6. 6 is the number for man. There's there's no coincidences in the Bible. You know who Jesus was hanging on the cross for? All mankind. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw it all. Do you think she saw bad things happening to a good person? Nobody loved Jesus like Mary did on the earth. That's my boy. Nobody loved her. You know what Mary was doing? She was beholding grace. She had her eyes fixated on grace. I bet she never even looked at the other two criminals being crucified with Jesus. What would be the point? She had her eyes fixated on grace. And that is one of the points here. When bad things are happening to good people... When bad things are happening, we must fixate our eyes on grace. Now, I'm talking about Jesus, okay? Do you know who was standing next to Mary, probably holding her up and embracing her? It was the apostle John. He was the only disciple that was at the cross. The rest of them had been scattered abroad. But John was there. <laughs> I talk about John a lot. You know what his name means? Of course, his name means grace. Grace. So while she was beholding grace, grace was holding her. It's just an amazing, amazing thing what God has done. John 1:16 says this: Out of His fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. Did you catch the kind of the imagery of that? Out of his fullness, we have received grace, there's John, in place of grace already given. And I said, Lord, what's the lesson with Mary? He says, love, love, love does not turn away even when bad things are happening to a good person. Love does not turn away from. Even in the midst of our roughest, toughest dogfight times, love, which is another name for God, remember God is love, God is love, God never turns away from us. God never turns His back on us, even when bad things are happening. So we think about, God, this bad thing is going on in my life. God, how can it be? It's not the absence of God's favor on your life. I'm going to tell you, sometimes bad things seem to happen to good people, but be encouraged. Look, fixate your eyes on grace. There's a prayer that Jesus prayed in the Bible. It's probably the longest prayer of the whole Bible. It's certainly the longest prayer of the New Testament. We pick it up in John chapter 17. We're talking about Jesus, my protector. Let's see what he says. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him. Jesus is praying three prayers, basically. He's praying for himself, he's praying for believers, and he's praying for his disciples. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world, They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Now watch what he says in verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. And then he says this word, protect them. He's saying, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that when they may be one as we are one, while I was with them, I protected them. Verse 12. I protected them, Jesus said, and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And then verse 15, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. He's using that word a lot, isn't he? Jesus is praying to his Father and says, and he's saying, Father, protect them, protect them, protect them. I'm gonna protect them. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, and all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I are one. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory, the glory you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and that they know you that have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's a long reading. That's a prayer that Jesus prayed. Normally, it was very, very short. Father, thank you. I mean, his prayers were really short. This is a long one. I understand that. Steve, I want you to begin this PowerPoint for a moment now. We just read John chapter 17, the whole chapter. John 17, verses 1 through 26. Here's what I do when I study the Word of God. I take a passage like this. It came out of the prayer I just read. And I'll pick out key words. First of all, I'll look at what's on the surface, and I'll say, okay, if if I read this, I realize it's Jesus praying to the Father. That's clear. He's saying, Father, I've glorified you while I've walked on earth. I can get that picture. He said, I've finished the work which you gave me to do. So I, I see the imagery that God gave him work to do, and Jesus is saying, I finished it. And by the tone here and by the scriptures, we know he is near the end of his life, isn't he? And so what I'll do is I'll look at the surface and see what do I pick up on the surface, but I'm going to tell you, you have to go below the surface to really let this minister to you from a finished work. So I'll take words and i highlight them like glorified and finished and work. And then I'll do word studies on them to see what comes out of those words. Where does it take me? When I looked up the word glorified, it literally means honored. Jesus was saying, Father, I have honored you. I was born exactly at the time you told me to be born. I was born where you wanted me to be born, in a stable. They laid me in a a manger, in a feeding trough. Father, I had the revelation that you were my daddy at the age 12. And although ministry was burning in my heart and I wanted to go, it wasn't the right time. I had to wait 18 years. I was 30 years old when I started my ministry. I honored you, daddy. I didn't get ahead of you, and I wasn't lacking behind you. Father, I walked the roads you asked me to walk. I spoke the things you asked me to speak. I healed the people you wanted me to heal. I went to the cross and I was crucified. I honored you, Daddy. What an amazing prayer just to say, Daddy, I've glorified you. That's what that word means. The word also means magnify. Jesus' heart was to magnify His Father. There are so many people even today that have a poor image of God. They have a terrible image of God, especially the world. But even there's believers that they just don't have the right image of God. And Jesus said, you know what? My mission is to magnify the goodness of my daddy. I want to come and I want to magnify the love of my father and the grace of my father. That is my heartbeat is always to magnify my daddy. Now, I thought about this this morning. If you laid a quarter in your hand and you put a magnifying glass on it, the quarter wouldn't get any bigger, would it? it'd get bigger to you, but the quarterwood itself would not grow in size. When we magnify God, God doesn't get any bigger. God's as big as He's gonna ever get. But He gets bigger to you. And so He said, I've come and that I would magnify you, Daddy. I want the whole world to see how good you are and how kind you are and how generous you are. I want the whole world to see that. Except the wonderful thing is Jesus didn't have to grab a magnifying glass and say, look at my Daddy. Jesus said, listen, I am the magnifying glass. He told one of his disciples, he had asked him, you know, show us the Father. In in John chapter 14, verse 8, show me the Father. He said, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Haven't I been good? Oh yeah, you've been good. Haven't I been full of love? Yeah, you've been full of love. Haven't I been full of grace? Oh yeah. Haven't I been kind? Haven't I been compassionate? Yes, you've been all those things. Then you've seen my daddy. You have seen my daddy. And so when we get this, this revelation working in our heart that it's a finished work, I don't have to show up and, and I don't have to prove anything to anybody to go to heaven to be right with my daddy. I want to tell you something. That finished work begins to work in your heart and you know what you become? You become the magnifying glass for, for the Father. You were the magnifying glass this morning, Steve. When you picked that guy up, I'll tell you what, that guy will never forget that. We'll just declare over him, he will be saved. That's the way it happens. So he was saying... I'm the magnifying glass. But as I looked at this particular scripture in that prayer, I felt the Lord point to this one particular word, and it's that word finished right there. The word finished. I want you to see what that means. He says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. The Greek word for finish is G5048. In other words, if you look it up in your Strong's Concordance, and that's how you do the, the word studies. Go look. Go look at these words. It is the Greek word teleao is the way it's pronounced, teleao. I have finished the work, which thou gavest me to do. This word finished, teleao, the word finish in that particular scripture right there is in the verb tense. We know something about a verb, it has a corresponding action. Remember that about verbs? They have an action. The word finish right there, when you look it up in the Greek, it literally means made perfect. Ah, I like that. He said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have made perfect the work which thou gavest me to do. When something is perfect, that means you don't need to add anything to it. And you surely better not subtract anything from it because it will be less than perfect. If it's perfect, you say, well, if I just add something to it. No, if it's perfect, it doesn't need anything added to it. And Jesus said, I have made perfect the work which thou gavest me to do. Let's see what the work is. We read it in John 17 in that prayer. I in them and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one. That's the way that scripture reads. I didn't add anything to it. That they may be made perfect in one. Jesus just prayed that prayer. He said, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me. Remember, I'm the magnifying glass. And has loved them as thou hast loved me. He said, you love them the way you love me. One thing I was blown away by when I read this particular scripture is that word one right there. The word made perfect in one, the the word one literally means another. That's really important. If you reread that scripture, it says, I in them and thou in me. So what Jesus is saying, listen, I'm in my daddy, I'm in my father. My father's in me and that they may be made perfect in one, in another. See, your perfection is not based upon you. It's based upon another. I am made perfect in another. Does that take the monkey off your back? It makes me want to shout that I have been made perfect in another and that the world may know thou hast sent me and has loved them as thou hast loved me. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, there's that word again, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, by another. And they they reveal who that another is. It's Jesus Christ. You see, he's talking about the abundance of grace and the gift of of righteousness, and he says, you shall reign in life by another, and that another is Jesus Christ. First John chapter 4 verse 17. Herein, now again, we're talking about the verb tense so far. Who's been doing this? Whose action has it been? It's been Jesus's action. It's not been ours. Jesus is the one who's been doing the work. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, who is He? Christ. So are we in this world. We don't have to go to heaven to be made perfect. The darling of heaven came to us and made us perfect. What made us perfect? Love. It says it right there. Does it say it there? It says love made perfect. Love made me perfect. So because love made me perfect as He is, is Jesus perfect? Jesus is perfect, didn't He? So are you. So am I. The word perfect we've been talking about, teliāo, is in the verb tense. Everything we've looked at so far has been the verb tense, teliāo. That word perfect in the English comes up again, perfect, but it comes from the root word. Notice how similar they are. G fifty forty eight, G fifty forty six. You can see they they come from the same word. It is the word teliás. Now it's an adjective, no longer a verb. Now, one of the scriptures that used to really get me when I first got saved was this next scripture. Mark, be perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, except this word perfect here is not the verb anymore. It's the adjective. This perfect for the Father is an adjective, as well as the one for me where it says, be ye therefore perfect. It's no longer in verb tense. That means there's nothing for me to do to be made perfect. You get that? There's nothing for me to do. The perfection is in the Father. It says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father is perfect. The perfection is in my Daddy. Here's how it should actually read. If you strip it away and just say, what does it really say in the tense that it's saying? It's saying, you are perfect, just as your Father is perfect. Is that a revelation? Is that cool? No, see, before I was always going, what do I need to do to be more perfect like God? Okay, I need to read my Bible more. Okay, Bible reading is good. I need to go to church uh, every time the doors are open. I need to be involved in ministry. Okay, all that's really good. But according to what I'm reading here, the perfect is not in the verb tense. It's not in the action. It's in what He has made me to be. I am, in the adjective sense, I am perfect because my Father is perfect. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you are perfect just as your Father is perfect. I love this right here, and I'm going to explain this. Perfect is an adjective, the Father is the noun. An adjective is a word that describes or clarifies, it brings clarity to the noun. If I said coffee table, coffee is a noun. It's a person, place, or thing, right? Table is a noun, but not when it's used to describe the table. The word coffee takes on the form of an adjective. It's no longer a noun. I see the teacher shaking his head. Yeah, it's no longer a noun because it's describing what that table was designed for. This table was designed as to put your coffee on it. So the word coffee is no longer a noun, it's an adjective. If I say I'm going down to the local pool hall to play some pool. Pool and hall are both nouns but not when pool is used to describe what the hall was designed for. It takes on the form of an adjective. And I love the next one, hunting cabin. The word hunting can be a noun, it can be a verb, or it can be an adjective. For example, if I said, I like hunting. Hunting can be a, it would be a noun in that case because hunting is a sport. It would be like me saying, I like baseball, or I like football. It would be a noun. If I said, Shh, I'm a hunting weapons or hunting deer, or whatever it may be, it would take on the form of a verb because it has action. I'm actively hunting. What if I say hunting cabin, it takes on the form of an adjective because it's bringing clarity to the cabin. You know, the reason it's not a verb is because the cabin isn't doing any hunting. The cabin hasn't had no action whatsoever. It just sits there. It's doing nothing. But it brings clarity, so it becomes the adjective. That's why it's so important when we look at these, these tenses to say, did, did you ever look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, and did it ever just go, man, i, I got to do more stuff to be perfect, like my daddy in heaven? Let's talk about perfect in a second here. In James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This is in the adjective tense, perfect gift. If I was to take this scripture and just say, let's just just highlight what the scripture is actually saying. Here's what it's actually saying. Every perfect gift is from the Father. I didn't add anything to it, didn't take anything away from it. Every perfect gift is from the Father. Wow, that changes the whole structure and how it means. Every perfect gift. In other words, the gift becomes the noun. The perfect is the adjective. It is describing what the, what the gift is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure, I love this, of the gift of Christ. Do you notice it doesn't say from the gift from Christ? See, in the previous scripture, it talked about the perfect gift. <laughs> what do you suppose the perfect gift is? The perfect gift is Christ. It's the gift of Christ. We've received the gift of Christ. Years ago, I preached a message called the perfect stone, which was all about Jesus himself. I saw him even 10, 11, 12 years ago as the perfect gift, the perfect stone. This makes this this scripture make more sense now. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Christ. Salvation, it's the gift of God. So, <laughs> anyway, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This was another scripture that I didn't have clarity on years ago, and it used to bug me because I had to work something out. I got to do something. It says right there, work it out. Work out your salvation, buddy. You better do it with fear and trembling. What does our salvation consist of? I'm talking about this one today right here, protection. But salvation is deliverance. It's protection. It's health. It's prosperity. The word saved in Ephesians 2 8, for by grace are you saved, is sozo. The word in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation. They come from the same root word. One is sozo, the other one is soteria. Do you know what? They both mean the same thing. Again, they come from the same root word. We work out our salvation from our spirit, man. How do we do this? Not by doing to get but by doing to release. There's a responsibility that we have as believers to release all the goodness of the Lord. He, when He saved us, He put everything inside of us that we need for life and godliness. He didn't hold back anything. It's already in our spirit. That is where the perfect work has been done. If we try to work to make things happen, a system of law, you know what? You feel condemned. Doing to release, it brings the responsibility. Revelation, chapter 21, verse 6, and we're almost at the end of the Bible. And he said unto me, it is done. See those three words? It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We looked at it in the verb tense. We looked at it in the adjective tense. Both of those two words come from the noun telas, G5056. Can you look at this scripture and find in there the noun that's telos, where both of those words were birthed out of? As you look that over, it's like, hmm, now which one could it be? Is it the word done? Is it the word "begin"? I just don't know. Jesus himself said, I am the end. I am the telos. You have nothing you need to prove. I was your beginning, and trust me, I will be your end. I have made you perfect before the Father. It is done. Why did I say all of that? Because we're talking about Jesus, my protector. What's the purpose of the PowerPoint? It's to remind us of the finished work of Jesus. We have nothing left to prove, we have nothing left to do, nothing left to earn. The perfect work in our spirit is released. And it works its way out into our soul, our mind, our will, our emotion, and our body. Therefore, you see, I can have the confidence that I can believe that Jesus is my protector. It doesn't matter if something bad happened to me, Jesus is my protector. You know, the one thing we don't know is how many times has Jesus protected you that you just don't know about? You look at all your little close encounters, all your little close calls and stuff like that and go, whoo, thank you, Jesus, but what you don't know is, when that little voice said, you know what, I want you to turn left here. My wife can tell you, and so can I, all kinds of occasions when, when the Lord just, it was that small, still voice that just said, do this, do this. This is where we go so that we get a foundation underneath of us so that I can believe everything the Bible says, that He's my protector, that He's the grace, the last man standing. He will keep me from the evil one. Now, Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When I saw that come up in a song this morning, I'm like, yes, Sarah. Who sang about that? When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know, it's perfect love, the Bible says, that casts out all fear. Did we just talk about his perfect love? It's perfect love that casts out all fear. Jesus was not afraid on the cross. I'm sure he didn't like it. He he was a man. He felt what you and I would feel. But he was able to look beyond it because he was able to say, my father has perfect love. My daddy has perfect love for me. My daddy has perfect love for, for you. You know, I thought about shadows and I thought, you know, my mind got a little silly. I thought, you know what? Why do we fear shadows? The shadow of a dog can't bite you. The shadow of a sword can't slice you. The shadow of a monster can't eat you, and the shadow of death cannot destroy you. The shadow of death cannot destroy you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, we see that death has been dealt with. It got a final death blow by Jesus himself when it says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Therefore, I will fear no evil. The same protector, the same gracious and merciful God will be with me, guiding my steps, shepherding me, leading me, and keeping me from the evil one. He will always be there to do that for me. When I was surfing on my computer, I saw this little clip that said, best videos of 2014. So I just happened to see one. I thought, I want to see what that one is. And it shows this surveillance camera on this two-story home shooting down. They live out in the country. The, the family's chihuahua laying out there in the yard. And all of a sudden, out of the woods, with blazing speed, comes this full-grown coyote. Whoa, man, the the little chihuahua hears him coming and tries to run. I mean, chihuahuas are usually pretty fast. No match. That coyote caught that chihuahua so quick, that chihuahua was lunch. He grabbed that chihuahua. He had one thing in mind, and that is to have him a little snack. (laughs) He grabbed him, and he starts you know, they're trotting away with him, and he, and he kind of drops him. He wants to get a better bite on him. He's got that little chihuahua around his neck. I'm thinking, oh, God. Out of the corner of the left of the screen comes this raging Rottweiler. <laughs> Rottweiler. And this Rottweiler comes out there, and the coyote's looking back. He's got the chihuahua hanging out his mouth. He figures, I'm no match for this Rottweiler. He drops the chihuahua. The chihuahua runs away, and the Rottweiler was just all over that coyote. I'm like, yes, Rottweilers. Thank God. And I got to thinking, why did that Rottweiler do that? There was no audio, so I couldn't hear what was going on. But believe me, I believe the chihuahua made a noise when the coyote grabbed him. Would you, would you think he made a noise? And the Rottweiler was nearby. Maybe he was on the other side of the house in the shade. I don't know but he heard that noise and he's like that's family that's family calling and I've never heard him talk like that you know what I'm sure it was the love they, they, they come from the same house they're family they're in the same house together and I'm sure he just said hey, listen he's my little buddy he's my little brother let me ask you something he, he, he no doubt did it out of what they would call doggy love I suppose do you think God loves you more than that Wilder loved that chihuahua I mean, come on, let's get real. He loves you infinitely greater than that Rottweiler loved that chihuahua. And I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says when we call unto the Lord, He hears us and He rescues us. He's rescued you and me so many times, it's not even funny. He's rescued us. 20 times in the Bible, we hear the phrase shadow of death. 20 times, 18 in the Old Testament, twice in the New Testament. 10 of those times, 50% of them come out of Job. That's where you first see it, shadow of death in the book of Job. Job was going through a tough time, wasn't he? Job had, some, had many losses. Job lost all his family, all his 10 children, seven boys, three girls. He lost all of his livestock. He lost all of his servants. And now the death plague has seemed to attach itself to Job. And he is ebbing and flowing, coming and going. And he figures, I'm next. And that's where you first see him talking about the shadow of death. The shadow of death is the Hebrew word, salmaveth. Here's what it means. It literally means the shade of death. Isn't that an interesting thing? A shade. They call it a shade of death. It reminded me of when I stand at the kitchen sink and do dishes. Yes, I do dishes. I stand at the kitchen sink and do dishes. We have a window right there at the kitchen sink. I said, when the shade is up... I can look out, I can see our deck, I can see our trees, I can see a bird once in a while, sometimes a wild turkey where there's a woods right behind us, I can see the green grass in the summer, I can see the white snow in the winter. But if I pull the shade, guess what? I'm totally disconnected from what's going on outside. It doesn't stop going on, it doesn't cease to go on, but I'm disconnected from what's happening outside, I'm no longer a part of it. That's all the shadow of death is especially for the believer. When someone passes, it just simply a shade was pulled. They are disconnected from being able to see into this realm, that's it. Oh, but they're alive. They're alive. Oh, that should give us great hope. They're alive. They, they see colors they've never seen before. They hear sounds they've never heard before. They have a presence they've never felt before. The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the mind has not conceived of the things that God has prepared for those who love Him." It's just a shade of death. That's it. you just disconnected from one realm and went into a more glorious realm. That's all. Psalm 23, when it talks about thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod, let's talk about that for a second. The rod is a club. It's about 24 inches long. It's made of some of the hardest wood. It's hand fit for the shepherd's hand. Hand carved. It's got this big knob on the end of it, and it is hard. It weighs a lot. And the shepherds are very skilled with throwing that that rod. So if a cougar comes in, or a lion, a mountain lion, or, or a wolf, or a coyote, or whatever it may be, the shepherd will pick up on that, and he'll take that rod. And, and even 30, 40, I mean, if you could put a football in their hands, I mean, I'll tell you what, they'd be multi-millionaire. They are so skilled. I mean, many yards away, they can throw that rod and hit that animal in the head and usually kill it. The rod is for protection, primarily. And if a sheep begins to wander off and the shepherd's watching him and he sees him, you know, 30, 40 yards that way, many times what he'll do is he'll take that rod, and he'll throw it over its head. And when it comes whistling by, you know, sheep get spooked real easy. They're like, "What? what was that? Coyote? Wolf? Back to the flock. It's always for protection. The rod is for protection. And yeah, if he does have to correct the little sheep, he's not beating the sheep with a rod. He may swat it on the butt like you swat your little kids on the booty. That's it. He's not there to beat the sheep. He's there to feed the sheep and love the sheep. And when I was thinking about that rod last night, that Jesus, when he came, he came not only to rescue us from the law. He did come to do that. But he came to seal us with his Holy Spirit. He came to seal us with His Holy Spirit. He came to say, wait a minute now, we know of a way to make you perfect. We're going to do something here that's going to seal you in so that when you do do some of these things that are kind of off moments, don't worry about it. It's not going to get into your spirit. You are sealed, the Bible says, into the day of redemption. Amazing, amazing, wonderful thought. The staff. I love this about the staff. The staff is used for a lot of things. When sheep start wandering to the left, the shepherd will reach out with his hook and he'll bring it back in. They start wandering to the right, he'll reach out and he'll bring them in. If one falls over a little embankment, it's made so it can go underneath the little sheep's arms, his legs rather, and he'll pick him up out of there and put him back. But here's one thing that I find is really neat. Only the occupation of shepherd carries that staff. No other occupation carries a staff. Not a shepherd's hook. So when the sheep looked and they see that shepherd's hook, they're like, that's my shepherd. That's my shepherd. And so I said, Lord, what does that mean to me? He said, your identity. Your identity is in the shepherd. You can easily identify a shepherd, can't you? Yes, you can identify a shepherd. Your identity is in the shepherd. Your identity is no longer in you. It's in the shepherd. I said, wow, that's really cool, God. I said, Lord, give me a couple of ways that we're protected. And I don't want to make this about work because we know the work is a finished work, but remember we have a responsibility. The first way we protect ourselves with the, with the power of the Lord is wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. It says, get wisdom, get understanding, do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Who's she? Wisdom. So don't forsake wisdom, she'll protect you. Love her, and she will, who's she? Wisdom. Love wisdom and she wisdom will protect you. Verse 7 says this wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Remember that word supreme. I'll come back to it. Though it cost you everything you have, get understanding. Cherish her. Who? wisdom. Cherish her and she will protect you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace. (laughs) There it is, Old Testament. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendors. Most problems that we are dealing with today, I'm I'm not saying all, but most problems concerning marriage, concerning money, concerning health, concerning, uh, concerning relationships, are not just flat out attacks by the devil. We, we blame a lot on the devil that the devil really didn't get us into. Really? You know what I'm saying? They're not just attacks by the devil. Many are just simply the result of the absence of wisdom. That's all I want to say. The word supreme found in wisdom is supreme is the word reshith. It's the Hebrew word reshit. It means the right place, right time, the right order. It means the beginning. And I said, "Wow, that's a pretty powerful word, Lord. You're saying wisdom is that. It's the right place, right time, right order." You ever feel like sometimes you were just in, you were in the right place at the right time this morning? And although we would say it's not wisdom to pick up hitchhikers, it was wisdom to listen to the Lord. That was wisdom. So there's this overriding thing. So I thought about Lord, the law first mentioned. Where does this word supreme? Where does this word reshith come up for the first time in the Bible? This word, the beginning. <laughs> you can see where that's going, don't you? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. God wasted no time. He says, In the beginning, God created. It was the right time. He hung everything in the right order. Everything was put in its right place. Everything came in its right time. There was no disorder. In the beginning, when God did everything, he did it with his infinite wisdom. I'm going to tell you something. Wisdom will protect you. It will protect you in all those dimensions. When we were working at Motorola, you've heard my wife tell a little bit about the story, when we were working at Motorola together. I I believe I couldn't be remarried because of the bad doctrine I had learned growing up. And it took five years for the Lord to finally get that junk out of my head, and I could see the the truth for what it was. And when the Lord, when I was sitting on the line one day, I don't know if I've ever shared this or not, when I was sitting on the line, minding my own business, and I looked across the way. You can see me. I'm working on phones, doing things with phones. And I just kind of looked across the way, and there was Valerie way over there. And I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, you could love her. And the amazing thing, there was this gushing that came over me, and I, it almost took my breath away, and I said, and I instantly fell in love with somebody I didn't really even know. I instantly fell in love with her. I'm like, because I heard the wisdom of the Lord. He'd already searched high and low. He's the beginning and the end. He knew. But because of this bad doctrine in my head, I'm trying to almost rebuke the Lord. Lord, Lord, that can't be you. Yes, it's me. You could love her. In the beginning, get wisdom. Another way we're protected is by the word. By the word. Do you know you're protected by the word? The word of God? In Psalm chapter 107, verse 10, and in Psalm chapter 107, verse 14, you find shadow of death comes up but in Psalm 107 verse 20 so he's talking about in this context i know you're dealing with some shadows of death i know you're dealing with some shadows of death but let me step you over to verse 20 that's where we hear the word and he sent his word and he healed all of our and he healed them and delivered them from their destructions i'm going to tell you something the word of god will protect I struggled with telling this story, but I'm gonna tell it. I asked my wife about it last night. Before we got married, I lived for the last uh, few months with a roommate, and then once we got married, I moved in. See, it was the right order, wasn't it? It was the right time. Anyway, I had this roommate. His name was Donnie. Donnie was a gentle giant, a 525-pound giant. Donnie was a big boy. We had such a great time. I don't know, three, four years after that, I heard the Lord say to me, it's time to go talk to Donnie. Talking to Donnie? What were we talking to Donnie about? About living. Okay, God. So I drove to Donnie's house, knocked on the door, and Donnie said, come in. I went in and sat down. Hey, Donnie, good to see you. Had a good little time. I am not a person of manipulation. I will never manipulate you to do anything you don't want to do. I said, Donnie, I said, the Lord has brought me here with a message for you. I said, he told me to tell you, if you don't, I forget exactly how I said it, but I said, basically, if you don't shed that weight, you're not going to be here much longer. And the moment I said that, Donnie began to weep uncontrollably. I've never seen anybody cry that hard. I mean, instantly when I said that. You see, God had probably already been talking to him. The moment I said that, he just began to, he's just even. I thought, oh my Lord. I just said, Donnie, I said, here's the scripture that God God gave me. It comes out of the communion scriptures. This is my body, which is for you. I said, that's the scripture the Lord gave me when he said, Mark, I want you to take care of yourself. This is my body, right, Lord? It's my body, but it's for you, right? Yeah. This is my body, which is for you. A little bit later, I said, Donnie, the Lord told me, you're not going to be here much longer if you don't shed that weight. I wasn't there to put condemnation upon him. I didn't have the message of grace working in my heart, but I still wasn't there with condemnation. I was there with a message of responsibility. You see how that would work? A message of responsibility. Donnie did an amazing thing. Donnie did an amazing thing. He shed over 200 pounds. He was down in the 200-some pound range within about a year. I've never seen anybody lose that much weight. And I would say, Donnie, are you starving yourself to death? Oh no, I, I feel full all the time, Mark. He was drinking these little packets of stuff, you know, and you know whatever he was he was drinking. It was just a liquid thing. He looked amazing, didn't he? He looked really, really good. He came in one day with kind of like a suit on. I'm like, Donnie, you look phenomenal. And then sometime after that, his wife made it known that we're going to part for good. Instead of turning to the comforter, the Holy Spirit, he turned to the comforter in the refrigerator. Donnie put all that weight back on and It didn't take very long to do it. I preached Donnie's funeral about two years after that. Not a sob story, not a sad story. You know what happened with Donnie? The shade just got pulled, that's all. He's larger than life, happier than he's ever been. He wouldn't come back here to even say hi or bye or how's things going. He is full of life. Friends, we have a responsibility with grace. Yes, grace will empower you. That's what grace does. It empowers you. John chapter 1, I'm closing, believe me. John chapter 1, verse 1. Remember, Genesis starts off with, in the beginning... God created. I find it interesting, John, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Grace, starts off the same way, in the beginning. (laughs) It starts off the same way. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Didn't I say Word would protect you? Isn't, Isn't wisdom supreme? Doesn't that mean beginning? In the beginning was the Word. I'll tell you what we need more than anything is we need the Word. Get in the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man who was sent by God, whose name was John. When I read that, and I went back to that part where it says, all things were made by him. And in him was not anything made that was made. I just inserted what he'd been already telling us, perfect. So it says, all thing, all perfect things were made by him. You know, if Jesus makes something, it's going to be perfect. All perfect things that were made were made by him. And without any perfect thing, there was nothing made. Huh, we can rejoice. God sees you as perfect. God sees you as perfect, brother. God sees you that way. God sees you as perfect. The word made perfect literally means finished work. The wisdom and the word is the rod and the staff. Wisdom and the word is the rod and the staff. One will protect you. The other one gives you identity. See how they work together? In fact, even in Proverbs chapter 29, I believe it's verse 15, the Bible says the rod imparts wisdom. And the word, as we know, according to John chapter 1 there, imparts life. In him was life, and the life was light of men. Let me close with this thought. Christopher Columbus died in 1506 in Valladolid, Spain. There stands a monument that was erected to honor that man, that great discoverer. I looked at that monument online, and probably one of the most Uh, interesting features, I would say, of that uh, memorial is a statue of a lion, and he is destroying one of the Latin words that is written on that monument. This Latin word had been a part of Spain's motto for centuries. Before Columbus made his voyages, the Spaniards thought that they had reached the outer limits of Earth. They thought, this is as far as it goes, there's nothing beyond so you know what their model was? It was ne, ne, plus, P-L-U-S, ultra. Ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond. That was their model. And that's what's on this monument. Ne plus ultra, except the lion is ripping away that ne to leave just plus ultra, which confirms that Christopher Columbus was right. There was more beyond. And friends, there's more beyond for us. Jesus proved by his death, burial, and resurrection that there was more beyond. He proved by fulfilling the law that there was far more beyond a set of laws and rules and regulations and customs and traditions. He proved there was so much more beyond all of that. Jesus proved that there was plus ultra more beyond dead religion and going through the motions. Jesus proved that he is our pastor. Jesus proved that he is our provision. Jesus proved that He is our passion of the Christ. He proved that He is our presence. He is our peace and friends. He is our protector. Jesus proved it. He said, I did it. I finished the work. It's a perfect work. You'll never have to worry about this again. I am the beginning and the end. The perfection is in the Father, the perfection is in me. How did Jesus, how did He finish this for us? by becoming our perfecter, grace, the last man standing. Grace, the last man standing. Do you know who the only apostle was that didn't die a murder death? It was John. Grace, the last man standing. You received that word today? That's a long word. Father, I just praise you and thank you for your goodness today. I thank you, Father, that we're not distracted when things don't go the way we planned them in life. It doesn't take from your goodness. We do not blame you. But, Father, in the midst of all that, we can stand up. Because we've got this boldness. We've got this attitude. We've got this grace that's working on the inside. I'm concentrating on working on myself. I can work with other people. I can work with other people. I can bend down on the road, and I can help the people that are down and out and bleeding all over the place. Father, I want to praise you today. I want to thank you for your goodness, Lord Jesus. I want to bless you because there's more beyond the bankruptcy I had to go through. There's more beyond the doctor's report I had to listen to. There's more beyond the relationship I lost There's more beyond. Jesus, my protector. Grace, the last man standing. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. God is good, isn't he?